0: Chief Justice, may it please the
1: court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS
0: 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC is out again this week, so we're pleased to be joined once again by Jack FitzHenry. Jack, how are you doing? Uh, Not bad. Thanks for having me back. So who did you make angry to get uh, pressed into this duty again? (laughs) I'm under an obligation not to disclose. Oh, Always invoke your Fifth Amendment right. A smart man and a great lawyer, I can tell. Legally trained Uh, here. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you with us today. Uh, Let's jump right into it. There have actually been a flurry of orders since our last episode, and the court granted review in four cases. The justices agreed to hear Garland versus Cargill, which is a challenge to the ATF's infamous bump stock ban. A bump stock, of course, is an attachment that can essentially transform a semi-automatic firearm into a fully automatic one. The court also agreed to hear another gun-related case with NRA versus Vulo, where the court is being asked to decide whether Maria Vulos, who is the then head of New York State's Department of Financial Services, whether her urging of regulated banks and insurance companies to stop doing business with gun groups violated the First Amendment.
1: The court also agreed to hear Coinbase v. Suski, which is a follow-up to last term's case of Coinbase v. Belsky. In Belski, the court held that a federal court must pause proceedings while a party appeals a denial of a motion to compel arbitration. And now in Suski, the court is being asked to decide whether a court or the arbitrator should decide the effect of subsequent contracts on the scope of arbitration.
0: Mm, very interesting. Finally, the court agreed to hear Diaz versus United States. The issue in this case involves the permissible scope of expert testimony during drug trafficking cases. Jack, there was only one oral argument that we'll cover this week. Uh, it's United States versus Rahimi. Uh, this oral argument was a doozy. It went about 90 minutes. And this is the case where the court is being asked to decide whether 18 U.S.C. 922 g eight, which makes it a criminal offense for someone to possess a firearm while being subject to a domestic violence restraining order, violates the Second Amendment. This is the first major Second Amendment case the court has heard since the Bruin case. And in this case, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that 922 G8 did violate the Second Amendment. So the government asked the Supreme Court to review that decision. Now, Mr. Rahimi, the respondent in this case, is not a nice person, (laughs) uh, to say the least. Have you seen his criminal record, Jack? I'm not privy to all the details, no. Uh, It is very lengthy, uh, to say the least. Uh, And that's part of what makes this case so interesting. It's the first Second Amendment case uh, where really the facts aren't particularly good for the person challenging the law or regulation. Uh, In fact, the facts giving rise to this particular uh, domestic violence restraining order are quite bad. In December of 2019, Mr. Rahimi assaulted his then-girlfriend, who is also the mother of his child, in a parking lot. He dragged her by her hair, hit her head on the dashboard, and even fired a gun at a bystander who witnessed the incident. Uh, uh, Yeah, that's that's an understatement. Uh, So in February of 2020, a Texas state court entered a civil protective order against him. Uh, as if all of that wasn't enough, Jack. Uh, while Rahimi was subject to that protective order, he was involved in five separate shooting incidents. And when the police searched his home while investigating these incidents, they found firearms, which, of course, the protective order barred him from possessing. So he was federally charged with violating nine twenty two G eight. At the oral argument, the justices seemed skeptical of Rahimi's arguments. Part of the problem might have been, as several of the justices pointed out, that the logical conclusion of the arguments made by Rahimi's counsel would be to call into question many laws that currently allow dangerous individuals to be disarmed. Justice Kagan accused him of, quote, running away from his argument because his implications were, in her words, just so untenable. Justice Barrett said at one point that she was confused by Rahimi's counsel's argument. And Chief Justice Roberts kept trying to pin down Rahimi's counsel on whether he would concede that his client, under any definition, would be considered a dangerous person. It is worth noting that the court will consider at its next conference the case of Brian Range. Uh, he was convicted in 1995 of food stamp fraud and is therefore prohibited from possessing a firearm under a different provision of 922G, 922G1, which generally prohibits anyone convicted of a felony or a crime punishable by more than a year of imprisonment from owning a firearm. In On banc, Third Circuit, in an opinion written by Judge Thomas Hardiman, said that a nonviolent offender like Range could not be permanently disarmed, consistent with the Second Amendment. So all you gun lovers out there and Second Amendment advocates, as all of us here at Heritage are, stay tuned. There's likely much more to come on that Second Amendment front. And right after this, we'll go into our interview with Jonathan Green. As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas, bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work. Individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. We're pleased to be joined today by Yonatan Green, who currently serves as a fellow at the Georgetown University Center for the Constitution. He's the founder and former executive director of the Jerusalem-based Israel Law and Liberty Forum, which is a project of the Tikva Fund. Yonatan, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, I know when you originally agreed to come on the show, we were going to talk all about Israel's push for judicial reform and how that effort differs from so-called Supreme Court reform efforts here in the United States. But obviously and sadly, events have overtaken our plans with the horrifying massacre committed by Hamas in early October. So I know we'll still talk about judicial reform in Israel and what we can learn from it here in the States. But I was also hoping we could talk about judicial supremacy more broadly and how issues with the Israeli judiciary have impacted and will impact the response to the current crisis. Uh, Does that sound uh, okay to you? That sounds good to me. Excellent. Well, before we begin, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you became interested in the law and issues with judicial reform more broadly? Sure. So
2: um, I am a born and raised Israeli. I am an Israeli attorney. I went to law school in Israel. I have practiced in Israel as an attorney. Um, I am from some somewhat American origins, as my accent might give away. My dad is from the U.S. and my mom is from the U.K. I do happen to be also licensed in the state of New York. Um, and I've always had sort of something of a cross-channel interest, uh, I should say, uh, in law and culture, uh, you know, that's part of the sort of hybrid doll identity, I think, of many uh, Israelis sure. uh, who come from, you know, different backgrounds. As a law student, I was an alumni or I attended a number of programs by the Tikva Fund, and I can, I'll can i say a word about them uh, in a moment. Sure. I had left the law for a few years after practicing, and I worked in tech, which uh, mm. is not so uncommon uh, for Israelis. And then I was approached by the Tikva Fund as an alum of theirs. To help them establish and then run uh, what we call the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. So that's very broadly about me. I'm a dad. I have three kids. That's fantastic. Um, uh, we 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 moved recently to the D.C. Uh, area in order, you know, uh, among other things, in order to be able to do this uh, this position at, at Georgetown University. A few really quick words about the Tikva Fund and about the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. Uh, the Tikva Fund is a nonprofit organization. They're head, they're headquartered out of uh, New York, but they also uh, have a, a pretty major operation in Israel. They're sort of an uh, educational, intellectual nonprofit, uh, which advances idea of both sort of classical Western traditional thought of Jewish values, uh, of Zionist values, um, and, and a whole range of other uh, issues in, in almost sort of any conceivable uh, area of, of life and culture. Um, the Israel Law and Liberty Forum, which was a, an initiative of the Tikva Fund, hmm. um, and I should say established by myself, but together with a, with the extremely uh, capable Ilana Mizel, who I, I must always uh, mention because she was really sort of the the moving force behind uh, the forum. Um, The forum is simply put an Israeli version of the Federalist Society. Mm. So the idea was simply to found an organization, which is sort of a a home organization for Israeli conservative jurists uh, or Israeli sort of legal uh, practitioners and scholars uh, who have sort of that sort of conservative or libertarian uh, uh, leaning um, and to be a platform for conservative legal ideas
0: in Israel. That's fantastic. Well, You know, I know part of our discussion is going to focus on judicial reform in Israel, why that reform is needed. But I was hoping you could briefly explain for our listeners Israel's legal system and how not having a written constitution uh, impacts the concept of judicial review in Israel. So first of all, I'll be unfair
2: to our listeners uh, and to myself, and I should say I'm going to do a, a shameless plug to say <laughs> Those that are the best kind. The, exactly. The, the, the only kind of plug, really, that, that there should be is that, first of all, I've, I've recently uh, published a paper in the Federalist Society Review yeah. called The uh, Peculiar Case of the Israeli Legal System. And we will link to that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Perfect. Um, you know, If you are interested in the Israeli legal system and especially the critique uh, uh, of that system, sure. um, I, I suggest you read it just because- Genuinely, it is complicated. It is complex. There's a huge amount of ground to cover. It cannot be summed up. I mean, I will try and sum it up in, right. in two senses, right. but it really can't. And uh, and that's why I do suggest that people who want to better understand uh, the background to efforts for reform in Israel well should should take a look at that. I will say some some really quick words about uh, about the question. Try and sort of uh, illustrate it in, in as broad as strokes as possible. Since, since the 1980s, the Israeli Supreme Court primarily I – I, I often say and its proxies because there are more sort of ox, uh, actors um, in addition to the Supreme Court. But primarily the Supreme Court um, have systematically, unilaterally and sort of without legal basis uh, dismantled uh, an entire array of checks and limits on judicial power. Mm. Um essentially rising to uh, a state or a status of judicial supremacy where the court the Supreme Court in Israel and other other courts as well have final say on truly any issue of public importance uh, in public or even uh, individual life uh, in Israel any issue of policy any issue of strategy uh, um, really uh, what have you what, whatever you uh, might think it would be this was while uh, sort of the court arrogated major types of political power to itself without any sort of uh, um, uh, legitimating or authorizing basis. And this is while the court also ignored and uh, um, trampled over all its own previous precedents on a range. Of issues so really there's, there's a human, there's a lot to go into there the, this involves the abolishment of standing requirements of just disability limits on sort of purely political or policy related issues um, this involves the uh, creation of the unreasonableness standard hmm. which is a sort of Israeli invented standard wherein judges simply evaluate the merits of policy or government decisions just based on whether they like them or not uh, not really connected or not really related to the sort of british unreasonableness model, which is really about outrageous or you sure. know, beyond the pale decisions. And there's nothing like that in the Israeli version. Um, but all this you can read probably a little bit better uh, over there. The last thing I'll in, in the uh, in the article that I mentioned, um, the last thing that I'll, I'll respond to is you asked about the sort
0: of uh, judicial review without right. a constitution, right? Uh, this too. Yeah. Sorry, well, I was going to say, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about basic laws and how that fits into the picture and how basic laws really differ from our written constitution here in the United States. Absolutely. Um, so again, truly briefly, uh, and I know this is a lot to cover, but yes, you cover I'm, it well in your paper. And like I said, we'll link to that. But yeah, if you give us the 40,000 foot overview, I think that'd be fantastic.
2: No, no. Uh, happily. Um, Basic laws throughout most of the history of Israeli jurisprudence and of Israeli politics were of no special importance or at least they had no special legal standing. It was a way – because I should say in 1948, Israel uh, had intended to put together a constitution to adopt a, a constitution of some kind and that never came about for sure. a host of reasons which I could go into maybe a little bit later in the podcast because I think that relates to what's happening today. Sure, But that never happened. And the compromise that was agreed upon was that there would be no constitution. Uh, Israel would remain a parliamentary Westminster-style democracy, same as you had in same as you have today in the UK and in, um, and in New Zealand, sure. but the same as most countries were at the time or without a written sort of legally enforceable constitution. And they would pass instead something that they called basic laws. Mm-hmm. Basic laws had no unique status. They were passed in the exact same way that ordinary laws were passed still to this day. Basic laws are passed in the exact same way that ordinary laws are passed. There's no special quorum or majority required. Sure. They're just ordinary laws. The difference is that basic laws are a sort of um, statement, that this is either a law of very high importance. So, for example, you know the laws defining the Knesset, the Israeli legislature, the laws defining the office of the president of the government, the Israeli sure. government. These are all, uh, you know, the judiciary. These are all basic laws. So, one is just to sort of say, "Hey, this law is important." Right. The other is to mark that law as a potential future component of a future constitution. You could sort of call it a draft article of a constitution. So conceivably one day in the future, by some mechanism, whether it be a a national assembly or whether it be some some special sitting of the Knesset, you'd have a special vote, whatever it was by some special measure when we do adopt a constitution, these were all potential draft chapters within that constitution. But throughout Israeli jurisprudence, both in terms of uh, uh, the public, the way the public saw it, both in, uh, also in terms of the way uh, uh, lawyers and scholars, and especially in terms of the way the Supreme Court saw it, time and again, ruling after ruling, the, S- the Supreme Court, uh, I should say, ruled, but really, it's just stated what was the across-the-board agreement that these mm-hmm. were not a constitution; they they did not have constitutional power; they did not confer any kind of power of judicial review of legislation uh, to the Supreme Court or to any other uh, court, uh, et cetera. So that is a sort mm-hmm. of history and background. Basic laws in 1995, and I'll, I'll make. It, there, there's so much to say about this. Right, really, it, right. it, i really. It's. I have to pump the brakes on myself. <laughs> so I'll, <laughs> I'll just try and wrap it that up in just one sentence. Well, this is important yeah. background,
0: so I, I think it's worth
2: going into a little bit. Sure. So, so in, in 1992, two very important um, basic laws were passed: basic law freedom of, of occupation, basic law human dignity and liberty. They formed. A bill of Rights of of some sort. It's not that there was not there, there were many rights previously enacted in you know legislation, both in basic laws and outside of them. But this was sort of maybe the primary example of sort of uh, major human rights being uh, enacted in a basic law. And in 1995, the Supreme Court in a very famous landmark ruling called the Hamizrahi ruling, the Bank Hamizrahi ruling, uh, the Supreme Court Um, deduced that these two basic laws uh, were effectively Israel's new constitution, Mm. that they constitutionalized all the previous basic laws, um, and that uh, 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 subsequent laws which uh, violated or infringed upon the rights set out in the new basic laws uh, could in in fact be struck down by the Supreme Court uh, uh, as Mm. unconstitutional. This was a massive shift, a, a massive dramatic shift to Israel's entire system of government, that's I think the, the, the more – or I'll put this differently – a different and I think less sympathetic way of describing it mm. is that the Supreme Court unilaterally, single-handedly decided one day that Israel had a constitution – when every single piece of evidence pointed to the contrary. Mm. And you know, sometimes people ask, you know, well, how do you know Israel doesn't have a constitution? Well, you kind of have to start the other way around, right? What what is the Israeli constitution? Right. Where where is that moment? And this is this is seen across the board, both in the the, the, the dissenting opinions in Hamizrahi in outside scathing attacks written on that on that ruling, uh, saying, what in the world are you talking about? Of course Israel doesn't have a constitution. For you know, for God's sake, what what are you what are you doing? Um uh, so uh, so this was a concerted effort by the court to give itself the power of judicial review without the benefit of a constitution. When I say the benefit, this matters a lot. Again, this is the last thing I'll say about this for now. But people often – an argument often made in Israel but also elsewhere is about the way a constitution limits government, the mm-hmm. way it, elect, uh, it limits elected government, the way it limits uh, uh, the legislature, the, the executive, et cetera. But that's not quite the case in the sense that really the Constitution is also an incredibly important element in limiting the judiciary.
1: Right.
2: If the judiciary is striking down laws or making landmark decisions that affect you know the most contentious and controversial issues issues in society, uh, it better do so a with the sort of legitimating and authorizing uh, element of a Constitution. So they have the sort of backing. That says we're not enforcing our own will. We're enforcing a document which has been – which reflects a conscious, deliberate decision on the part of uh, uh, the public, a, a deep consensus in the public to empower the judiciary to enforce certain norms uh, which is so, so that the legislature and executive don't violate them. So that's A. But even more importantly, there's a constitutional text And judges at least have to go through the um, through the motions. You know, some people argue whether how faithfully they they do this, and obviously that's also an argument in the U.S. but at least judges, when judges are constrained by a constitutional text, at least they have to give some kind of lip service that, they're, that, that, that they are applying or implementing some kind of constitutional text. And in Israel, that's not the case at all. In Israel, the judge, the, the, sorry, the judges, the judiciary are, are in fact untethered mm. by any kind of constitutional text that limits the decisions they can make. While at the same time, they claim for themselves this total power of striking down. Legislation for almost any reason that they can conceive of. And very, very recently, that has extended the the judiciary, the Supreme Court has extended that power to even striking down basic laws to even striking down provisions of the basic laws themselves. Even though they previously, (laughs) right, even though the entire theory of striking down laws is because they violate basic laws. So that's a few words of background on on judicial review in
0: Israel. Well, it really is remarkable, especially when you explain it like that. And, you know, when I was originally reading your paper and other papers on this issue, one of the things that stood out to me is just the broad scope of authority that the Israeli judiciary claims for itself, particularly in areas that certainly here in the United States and many other uh, countries would be decided by the political branches of government. Government, And so one of the areas I know where the Israeli judiciary has claimed uh, some broad authority for itself is even in areas of military affairs uh, in terms of draft decisions, uh, military maneuvers, that sort of thing as well. And so I was wondering if you could talk about with us today uh, how this outsized role that Israel's judiciary plays in these military decisions uh, may impact the ability of the political branches of Israel's government to respond to the current crisis. Sure. Absolutely. And I think this is this is a I'll, I'll say a
2: useful or an important opportunity to talk about that specific aspect of judicial mm. involvement in supremacy in Israel. While there are many, I think, you know, uh, uh, there are so many areas of life and policy in which the Supreme Court has got involved and in which there, you know, judicial supremacy has had uh, an adverse effect or even a positive effect just without legal basis, which those are sort of two mm. two separate things. Certainly, the question of military, national security, strategic issues is a major component of uh, the Supreme Court's involvement in Israeli public life and policy. Now, I, I want to be really, really careful before I dive into this particular issue, which, which for me, I think is the sort of main, the the, the, the sort of bulk of what I want to talk about right. today. Before I do that, I want to be really careful because for, for two reasons, you know, following the the horrific, horrific attacks by Hamas on Israel, Israelis, I think correctly, have generally been very careful and cautious about what you might call the, the blame conversation, of the course. responsibility conversation. Putting aside for a moment, saying to say the obvious, that the blame and responsibility first and foremost goes to the barbarous of course. Uh, people. Uh, 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 the people who committed uh, Committing the these attacks. massacres. Yes. Uh, but putting that aside, of course, there are critical questions in Israel about, about uh, who messed up who, sure. uh, and, and what the consequences of that should be. And I think Israelis are wisely avoiding that conversation too deeply right now because we're in the thick of war, because it's a sure. good idea to have the people in charge, stay in charge for the moment in order to to conduct uh, the, uh, um, the current war. Of course, that that m- might not remain the case, uh, you know, depending how long how, how this plays out. Um, and even more so, I also want to be careful, because certainly when we talk about this, you know, the, the recent events of October 7th, um, the list of those who ought to take responsibility is probably long. And on the top of that list is certainly not the Supreme Court, meaning to put it differently, you know, th- there are elected and professional officials uh, who surely are above the Supreme Court uh, on that list of responsibility. So I don't want this to be understood in any way as if I was ascribing responsibility or blame to the Supreme Court for the recent events. That's, that's obviously untrue. However, however, there's no question that both directly and indirectly judicial involvement over the past uh, 30 or 40 years in questions of military Uh, um, uh, issues, and and more specifically in questions that have to do with terrorism, even directly that have to do with Hamas, Uh, uh, there's no question that they have um, influenced in one way or another the Israeli posture, uh, Israeli military capabilities in dealing with these terrorist organizations. And some could argue, and this is something that Israelis will have to reckon with after, uh, uh, you know, sort of when the dust settles, both figuratively and and literally, Um, when the dust settles, um, this is something that Israelis will have to reckon with. And some might portray it as a kind of death by a thousand cuts by uh, um, a host of decisions which might have had some effect or some minimal or or, or limited effect that kind of snowballs into a larger effect. And I I, I will illustrate that. I will will talk about that um, in in some detail. The last thing before before really diving in and talking about some specific decisions and kind of sketching out a timeline – I think there's some not quite ironies and quite the right word, but there is something interesting about the current situation because, of course, you know, and this is originally I was uh, supposed to come on the the show over here uh, to talk about judicial reform in Israel sure. because that was the major issue of the day sure. in Israel that was widely discussed and, and, and debated and a, a massive controversy in Israel, probably one of the biggest co- public controversies Israel right. has well ever, uh, ever seen and, and ever experienced. Um, and, and all that's been totally brushed aside. And, and I think truly for the better, meaning you can see how these divisions and, and uh, you know, the disagreements deeply held and deeply um, contested within Israeli society were of truly no consequence at the moment in terms of Israel's response to uh, uh, um, the, current, the current crisis. Um, the reason I'm saying that is that in some ways, this is somewhat reminiscent of what happened in 1948, And if you think of in 1948, the nascent state of Israel says, well, we better get a constitution and let's sit down and have a think and let's see what are the governmental arrangements? What does the government scheme and system that we would like to adopt that are optimal for us. And let's look at other countries and let's get the best scholars and let's do everything that the Federalist Papers did. Let's do everything that the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia did. Let's get the best and brightest uh, to put together a masterpiece of government. Um, And that never happened. Right. What happened was Israel was at war, a war of survival, including a war of internal survival also in terms of the different factions within Israel. And they said we can't we just can't do this right now. We just have to make do. With whatever shoddy arrangements we happen to have uh, uh, inherited from the from the British mandate uh, and from other uh, sources and we just have to make do with that and, and just power through this and, and, and sort of stagger along with what we have in a way that's almost sort of what's mm. happening right now. We, we've had, you know, we were very close at least uh, for better and for worse, meaning uh, a positive aspect of the, this whole controversy around judicial reform in Israel, is that Israelis were finally arguing about this stuff, something that had been sort of uh, uh, dusted under the carpet for so many years, and this was finally a major issue. This in, in and of itself, I think, was an uh, an achievement or success of the reformers. They'd managed for this to become such right. a major issue. Um, so I, I just wanted to point, that, point out that similarity. So here we are again right. on the cusp Maybe of reaching some kind of resolution, or at least having this conversation, and events have overtaken. And events have overtaken yeah. exactly. So to talk a little bit about uh, about the history of this, I mean, I, I won't talk too much doctrine, even though the, we, I, I think the, there won't be a choice at some points. I'll I'll kick off with a case in 1992. This is the left wing, okay. Robin uh, government president, uh, prime minister, uh, Itzhak Rabin, um, Hamas, which mm-hmm. is a fairly new terrorist organization. A Palestinian terrorist organization Hamas stands for Harakat uh, muqamel Islamiya, the Islamic resistance movement. Okay. I should say resistance mukawame is a is a capital R resistance not resistance in the in the in the way that you and I use the word resistance' sure. it's, a, it's a term of art that means sort of you know violent struggle uh, against you know an enemy or whatever it is um so this this new ish terrorist organization uh, commits a, a heinous crime they they kidnap and then uh, execute. Uh, an Israeli soldier, an Israeli border policeman. His name was Nisim Toledano. And Israelis and the Israeli government are infuriated by this. And Robin, and again, this is Robin is the labor, labor prime minister, you know, he he was certainly in some senses a hawk, but also, you know, Robin is the Nobel Prize Prize winner, the, the sort of figurehead of the Oslo Accords in Israel and, and peace with the Palestinians. Robin gives an order. You know, robbing together with the minister of defense and sure. et cetera, gives an order that Israel take 400 Hamas operatives, 400 senior Hamas operatives, grab them and deport them immediately into Lebanon. And Israel, remember, at this time, Israel controls southern uh, Lebanon due to the first Lebanon war. And this is in the middle of the night. They round up 400 Hamas operatives, take him on buses up north. Now, some human rights organizations get get wind of this, and this is and the whole idea, though you know, Robin's whole approach here is to do a sort of hush hush in the middle of the night. And I, and I should say the reason the legal basis for this is an explicit rule, a specific mandatory. When I say mandatory, I mean something which remains from manda- some of the legislation of the British mandate yeah. over Palestine, and that that included some uh, um, sort of wartime powers that the government had. And some of those, one of those powers was explicitly to expel. Uh, um, uh, you know, terrorist operatives outside the borders of the country. And there's no, there's no question that that authority existed and that this was a sort of appropriate use of that authority. Mm. So it, I think it was something like 1 a.m., uh, uh, the, uh, um, the on-duty justice, which was Justice Aharon Barak, receives a petition to his home, which says these 400 uh, uh, Hamas operatives are being deported and you got to stop it. Mm. So at 1 a.m., he gives an order from his home as the on-duty, the on-call justice, sure. Gives an order to stop the buses and the buses just park on the border of Lebanon waiting for the order that they can actually go ahead with this deportation. Now, I'll pause this for a second because this would already seem a little peculiar to Americans. I'll just say in Israel, the Supreme Court is the the court of first and last instance Mm. instance for a host, a host, virtually all constitutional and administrative Law issues. So almost any challenge to the government fit, starts and ends with the Supreme Court. That in mm. itself is a very peculiar, unusual, very problematic feature. I won't go into that right now. But <laughs> sure. if anybody's sort of scratching their heads, hang on. I can't quite imagine somebody running up to, you know, Justice Gorsuch's sure. house and knocking there saying, hey, you got to, you know, give it give an order. Right. Um, and damis. So that is the case in Israel. I'm not going to go into the legal technicalities. There was some very unusual and i think an unsubstantiated argument that that Barack and these other in the petitioners had on why this was illegal basically it was that the law said that they had to have a hearing, but in fact, the law didn't say that they had to, had, had to have a hearing before they were expelled. They could mm. have a hearing after they were expelled because this was a reversible decision. Somebody was expelled. You could just bring him back. Um, and indeed, the next day, when the full panel of judges convened, they ruled five to two. I think it was five to two. I might be getting wrong. Or it might have been unanimous. But they ruled, in fact, uh, 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 that Israel could go ahead with the deportation. Mm. But the reason I'm going with this, I'm just giving the story because we're looking back. What are we now? This is. 30 years, over 30 years ago, here is a first, a very important example of a way in which the court directly intervenes with a specific military terror-related government decision. Yeah. Um, and in fact, hampers. In fact, hampers that decision. I should say that 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 decision by Barack caused a 24, 24-hour wait for these terrorists to be deported. In those 24 hours, of course, that gave time for a massive sort of global uh, um, uh, organization or a massive global sort of mobilization against the deportation mm-hmm. and different petitions and international pressure. And more importantly, the Lebanese government got organized in a way that they would not allow the Gaza deportees into Lebanon, but rather they sort of made them wait in, in some sort of interim area. Mm-hmm. And then this this caused sort of a major uh, international issue. And one last thing I'll say about this case is that one of those deportees, one of those deportees was Ismail Haniyeh the future leader current, currently the deputy leader of the Hamas movement mm. um, and and it's amazing you know what would have been the case if these people were permanently deported out of israel where would we be today you know some of them might have smuggled back in some of them would have continued their their terrorist activities from outside israel no question um, and yet this is a tool which ultimately became almost unusable mm. for the israeli government following the rulings here so that was just one illustrative example, and there are so many other examples throughout the years of ways in which uh, the court has, without any real basis in law, mm. uh, uh, intervened with the way that the military could deal with, with, deal with terrorist threats. I'll run through just a few without going into the level of detail and background sure. that I just went into the 1992 example. Um, In the year 2000, uh, uh, the court ruled that Israel could not hold a senior Hezbollah operative. They they could not detain him. He had finished his his uh, um, uh, criminal. um, He had finished his time serving in prison uh, for being a terrorist operative. Uh, uh, The Israeli Supreme Court ruled that Israel could not detain him as a bargaining chip for negotiations with uh, for hostage uh, uh, release Mm -hmm. negotiations. And I won't go into the whole story, but this is. Critical. I mean, if you think about the hostage situations that we have today and the way that this ruling has affected the entire way that sort of hostage negotiations and the entire mindset of taking hostages has developed over the years, this ruling – Israel's approach was if we have hostages on the other side, if there's somebody with information on hostages on the other side, we can hold – unlawful enemy combatants indefinitely as a bargaining chip, not in order to get information, not because they pose an immediate threat, but because we can use the holding of this person in order to gain an advantage over the other side and possibly come to some kind of arrangement in terms of uh, uh, hostage exchange exchange, or or, um, whatever it is. is. So the court ruled that to be illegal, even though, and again, without going to all, all the history, this was after the court so many times had dismissed petitions of the same kind. So there was mm. precedent after precedent after precedent where with good legal basis, the court said, yes, of course, Israel could do this according to the current legal regime. The court did an about phase and said, you know what? Actually, I don't like this and I don't think you mm. can do it anymore. And then in 2002, the Israeli Knesset, the legislature passed a law explicitly authorizing the Israeli government to do this mm. because one of the things that had been said in this ruling was, well, you know what? If the Knesset passes a law that explicitly authorizes you to do it, then maybe you can do it. The court interpreted – I'm doing sort of air quotes. The court right. interpreted that law uh, to basically remove all of its sting and all of its mm-hmm. meaning. And to this day, the Israeli government and military to this day have been robbed of this tool mm-hmm. in dealing with hostage issues. Um, the uh, you know, other examples, which I, I won't really go into, but one has to do with targeted killings and the way that the Israeli military can uh, um, you know, target and kill terrorist operatives. And in 2005, in a, in a landmark ruling, the court ruled, well, well – you can do it, but only under really specific circumstances. So, you know, the person that you're targeting has to be actively engaged at that exact time in hostilities with Israel. It's not, fact, it's not enough that they've done so in the past. It's not enough that they belong or, to the, or that they're a major part in the hierarchy of a terrorist organization. They have to be actively engaged. You have to show that. So, again, and all this, I'm saying these are all with very dubious basis in law mm-hmm. or, or really very controversial. Um, there are many other examples. S- some examples, which I, I won't go into now, have to, are directly related to the Gaza border. And this is the last example I'll give. Truly, there are so many others, but but this is the last example sure. I'll give. In 2018, there was a series of sort of civilian or quasi civilian marches on the Israeli Gaza border by Gazan. Uh, These were orchestrated by Hamas by uh, and other terrorist uh, uh, factions and their explicit and very clear intent was to weaken the the ability of Israel to de- to defend that border there was no question mm-hmm. about this and the whole idea was if previously up until then it was much easier to say well anybody that comes within you know x hundred feet of the border anybody who comes who touches the, the border fence is is a legitimate target the fact that they brought so many civilians over the border Blurred those lines, mm. and even then, the court entertained petitions which were which directly related to the rules of engagement and to the the open you know, the rules of opening fire mm. um, in real time. So this is while Israel was doing battle on the Gaza border and uh, trying to understand uh, uh, how they can deal with this specific strategic threat. The court was actively engaged mm. and actively hearing petitions on uh, uh, the specific rules of engagement during during wartime. This is something which would not be. Countenance, I think, in any other jurisdiction, any, any, in any other um, uh, country. So, to wrap all that, I, I, I know that was long, but to wrap all that up and, and, and to move away in a different direction. Um, by no means am I saying that the Supreme Court is anywhere responsible for what recently happened, and, and, and that's obvious. Right. But there's no question, on the other hand, that Israel will have to reckon with the way in which the Supreme Court has has um, diminished the ability of the Israeli government, the Israeli military, mm. to combat terrorism over the years, and again, I say, with
0: very, very dubious and limited legal basis. Mm. Now, what I thought was interesting, uh, shifting in a slightly different direction, is you know twenty some years ago, Judge Robert Bork he wrote a book, a Coercing Virtue, where he talked about the dangers of judicial supremacy for many of the reasons you just outlined, and he held up israel 's system even then twenty uh, some years ago as one of the worst examples of this phenomenon and so I was wondering just briefly if you may talk to us about how what we here in the United States can learn from israel 's experience with judicial supremacy and how reform efforts in Israel differ from the so-called reform efforts here in the United States? I think that's an excellent question. And I I will echo you in recommending to any readers that are
2: interested in in sort of having an understanding of what's happening in Israel, should go ahead and read Robert Bork's critique of Israeli jurisprudence. And and I should also add uh, Judge Richard Posner's critique. It's called Enlightened Despot in the published mm-hmm. in the New Republic in 2007 it's a short article but also a scathing critique of Bahram Barak and, and the Israeli uh, Supreme Court's uh, uh, jurisprudence. So to answer your question fairly quickly um I'll start with your uh with your second question right about, about the differences between Sure that'd be great. you know legal reform in the US and as well of course you know uh not to be too cynical about it of course but to some extent it calls for legal or judicial reform in the U.S. have been fairly recent. I'm, I'm ignoring for a moment Roosevelt and sure packing of, sure. of the New Deal. But since Roosevelt, right. probably today is, you know, uh, the the most significant example we've seen for many, many years of right. calls for judicial reform in Israel. Uh, sorry, in the uh, in, in the United States. I think there's a fundamental difference uh, between the two. Um, in Israel, we've had a judicial reform. We've had major judicial reform over the past 30 years. That is judicial reform, which has been um, enacted by the judges. Right. We've had judicially led judicial reform with no authority, with no accountability, with no legitimacy. And the current legislative efforts, which I, am, I have no problem defending and no problem advocating for, the current efforts which have been halted, uh, but the current and, and future efforts in Israel uh, about legal reform are simply to uh, – uh, to limit the worst excesses, the worst consequences of those reforms and to bring us back to some extent, to some limited extent, to where we were before the legal reforms that, that the judiciary has
0: enacted. Is it fair to say the current are, even though they're on hold, the current efforts in Israel are really to place uh, political ce- decisions back in the hands of political actors in Israel? Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. and that and, and that and that is portrayed by the reform
2: opponents. And of course, here we're not we're not diving too deep into the reforms themselves, but that is portrayed as something terrible, as something you know what could be less democratic than to give the electorate decision making powers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, the horror, the the anti democratic horror. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm coming off as a little too too sarcastic <laughs> here, but the, the the difference with with the U S. and again, I think there's no question that. The reforms proposed, whatever they are, whether it has to do with court packing or ethical rules for judges, whatever they are,
0: uh,
2: these are not responses to structural systematic reforms made by anyone else. These are not responses to changes made by previous administrations. These are not responses to changes made by the judges themselves. These are simply responses – again, if you'll allow me to be a little bit cynical – these are responses to decisions that particular parties or particular uh, um, uh, political – uh, factions don't like. And sure. if you don't like particular results of a system, the, you know, the, you might come up with suggestions to change that system. The okay. difference, I think, is is crucial because there's no question again that in Israel, this is a reaction. This is a reaction, not to decisions that people don't like. This right. is a reaction to actual reform that's simply been judge
0: led and has taken place over the last uh, uh, 30 years well, and I guess my last thought, would it be fair to say that in Israel, the current reform efforts in terms of the legislation being considered is an effort to get the Israeli courts to be less political, whereas the proposals being floated in the United States, such as court packing, ethics codes, that sort of things, are really an effort to get the court to be, the US Supreme Court in particular, to be more political, <laughs> even though uh, they are you know, deciding cases based on our constitution and laws here uh, so far. Yes, I think that is a fundamental a fundamental difference. I mean some would say that
2: that's not entirely true just in the sense that some of it is recognizing the very political nature of any court, for example, that has the powers of judicial review. So one of the proposals in Israel is to have – more political involvement in the judicial selections process and in that sense that is cre- cre- you know that is creating a more political court according to some mm. i think those in favor of the reform would say not at all the court has always been political the court is deeply political all we're doing is uh, sort of, you know, a lending that legitimacy and b giving if if you're going to be a political uh, court, then at least the results of the political process should be reflected somehow in that political nature of the court. But broadly, in almost all other contexts, aside the issue of judicial selection, I I absolutely agree. Hmm. And I I do want to answer your other question just about what lessons can be learned from the Israeli experience. Yeah, that'd be great. This is a very, very short answer. I don't have much to say about this. I think the, the, the systems and the 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 judiciaries and uh, the different uh, elements are so different that it's it's really the, they're so far apart that really a, you know sure. th- there are limits to that. The one thing I I should say is, and I get this a lot from Americans, so I'm just mirroring this back to them, is gratitude. I think mm. many Americans, upon hearing about the Israeli legal system and the Israeli system of government, can be very grateful for. The constitution, the constitution that you have, mm. the governmental arrangements that you have, warts and all, and whatever objections you might have, whatever issues you might have, when you look at the Israeli mess and what mm. – es- not only what has been before but especially what has been created by the juristocracy by uh, a judicial supremacy over, over the past 40 years, Americans often have
0: a sigh of relief and say, well, you know what? I don't think our system's that bad anymore. Mm. Well, we have a question we ask all of our guests here on Scotus One Hundred and One, and I'll ask it to you as well. If you could have a conversation with any justice uh, currently serving, past justice, who would it be, and what would you talk about? I I think I I have a very unexciting answer,
2: and those are okay, right? And I like you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess. I haven't listened. I'm gonna say like eighty five percent of your listen, you know, and probably give this answer. I mean, I, I have two in mind. One would be Scalia. Um, great answer right i mean do you, and does one even need to explain the reasons why i'd no. want to sit down <laughs> for lunch with scalia um I, the as an Israeli the one i guess asterisk i 'll add to that is that Scalia is unique not only in, in in many ways but in the way that he was able to articulate the fundamental principles behind many of his decisions mm-hmm. and in a way to export his judicial worldview to other jurisdictions. And this is something, you know, we're we're in a podcast, we've spoken very little about the US Supreme Court, but this is a podcast about the US Supreme Court. I should say that the US Supreme Court has very effectively and successfully exported its activist or its progressive or whatever you will call it, its most activist jurisprudence. So sort of Mm. the Burger Court, the Warren Court, living constitutionalism, all these other things, these have been very effectively uh, propagated and adopted across the world. And whether it's originalism or a limited judicial role or these other things, they're much more limited in the way that they've been communicated across the world. So I think Scalia was a champion of being able to do that. And that's something that, you know, I
0: I, I wish the U.S. Supreme Court could only do more of that. I echo that uh, fully. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for taking the time to come discuss these very important issues with us. And if you're willing to come back again in the future, we'd love to have you on as a guest in a future episode. Thank you so much. All right, Jack, Uh, I understand as a Michigan man, uh, you did very well at Michigan Trivia last time you were on the show, but I understand you want to get a little revenge this time.
1: Yes, I'd like to play the role of quiz master this time around. Uh, <laughs> now, you
0: know. don't you know it's very polite uh, when you are a guest hosting the show to throw nothing but softballs
1: <laughs> for trivia questions? As a football fan, I don't know if I can, if I can acquiesce there. But we'll see. They, these are not all stumpers, that's well, for sure.
0: All I can say is no sign stealing over there, uh, Jack. I,
1: I, I make no promises un, until there's due process and, and a full <laughs> investigation. All right. Well, hit me with what you got. So because I'm a bit of a neophyte in Supreme Court history, I do need to bring things down to my level and interject some sports. (laughs) Uh, Some of our listeners may be aware of the dubious scandal percolating in the world of college football, Zach just referenced. Tell us more about it, Jack. Mm, Give us the 40,000-foot view. Not not inclined to go into great detail, but suffice it to say that the the University of Michigan football team is under some scrutiny currently. (laughs) Some of that scrutiny may be driven by uh, very interested parties who are yet to play us and who do not wish to play us on a level field. Uh, you know, I might leave it there and uh, okay. inquiring minds can do their own investigating. <laughs> um, but because this is an NCAA scandal, the NCAA, uh, not unlike our friends in the federal administrative agencies, tend to act like judge, jury and executioner in these matters. Uh, but also like federal administrative agencies, the NCAA tends to lose more often when these disputes reach Article Three courts. So my question to you, Zach, at least to open with here. How many times has the NCA been a party to a SCOTUS case? And how many times has it won? We could even do prices Right rules here (laughs) if you want to,
0: you know, guess without going over. Uh, All right, Bob Barker. Uh, Well, you know, I don't know that this qualifies as a softball, (laughs) Jack. (laughs) My best guess would be, I would say I can think of four or so cases where the NCA has been a a party to the case before the Supreme Court. Of course, there was the one from several terms ago involving the state of New Jersey, Murphy uh, versus NCAA, where New Jersey wanted to, I think, essentially legalize sports gambling. That's right. Uh, that one comes to mind. Several others do. So I'll, I'll uh, since we're playing by prices rights rules, uh, I was going to guess either three or four, but I'll uh, even though it's prices rights rules, I'll go with four.
1: All right. Well, you're you're staying on the right side of the line here because by my count, there's five. Okay. Now, they, one ended up being consolidated, so maybe it's a, it's a total of six. But uh, you'd be all right in either in either case. <laughs> uh, and by my count, again, treating those two consolidated cases as one case, the NCA's record before the high court is two and three. So mm. fortunately, they're still losing. Um, <laughs> several of these, unsurprisingly, were antitrust cases. I, I won't go through them all. I'll just mention one. That's the 1984 decision in NCAA v. Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, where the court held that the NCAA's plan limiting the broadcast of college football games was an anti-competitive restraint of trade. Now, notably, Justice Byron White, who was a former halfback at the University of Colorado— Wizard White. Wizard White, indeed. Uh, he dissented from that uh, opinion along with Chief Justice Rehnquist, and Justice White explained that the NCAA's television plan— By mitigating what appears to be a clear failure of the free market to serve the ends and goals of higher education, the NCA ensures the continued availability of a unique and valuable product, the very existence of which might well be threatened by unbridled competition in the economic sphere. Hmm. Uh, I think fans can make their own judgments about (laughs) how that prediction has aged. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, they they can. What you got for me next, Jack? Well, I'm afraid that some benighted souls— prefer professional football to college football. I'm happy to say that the NFL has also found itself before the Supreme Court every now and again. (laughs) So same rules. Do you have a guess as to how many times and what the NFL's record of success is?
0: I don't know. Uh, I'm going to suspect most of the cases were antitrust related uh, as well, Uh, which on an interesting side note, you know, Major League Baseball is the only professional sports league that has a court-created antitrust exemption. Uh, there was a very interesting case uh with a cert petition pending before the court or that looked like it was going to go up uh, before the supreme court and it actually settled out uh, earlier this month uh, that's a shame yeah so if anyone's interested uh, they should uh, check that out um but i will say the nfl has probably been up before the court two or three times uh, if i had to guess
1: Okay, well, you're you're in the ballpark or in the stadium. We're,
0: uh, we're mixing our metaphors here
1: a little bit gleefully. <laughs> so, uh, my research indicates that the NFL may be—I don't know if they're actually less litigious, but they don't make it as far as frequently. So, they've been up mm. before the Supreme Court twice. They have an O and two record. Uh, so, the, you know, they're being shut out of the high court. Uh, in Radovich, the court held that a former player had adequately pleaded his claim that the NFL and its members entered into a conspiracy to monopolize and control organized professional football in the United States. Hmm. Go figure. Uh, in American Needle, the court found that when teams conducted licensing activities collectively through a separate corporate entity, they engaged in quote unquote concerted action covered by the Sherman Act.
0: Interesting.
1: So those are the uh the NFL's brushes with glory at the high court. So as, as you can probably gather, antitrust claims are a common theme in football cases, like you say, only the MLB has that cushy right. exemption for now. Right. In the NCAA's last appearance before the high court, NCAA v. Alston, a 2021 case, the court unanimously held that the NCAA's restriction of education-related benefits for athletes violated the Sherman Act. So Zach, my question to you is, who wrote that unanimous majority opinion? In the Alston case? In the Alston case, Correct.
0: I believe it was Justice Gorsuch.
1: That's right. There was a majority by Justice Gorsuch, a rather withering concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, but Justice Gorsuch did indeed write for the majority. Hmm. So, while Justice White and I may prefer football. <laughs> uh, the court collectively, you know, over the arc of its history seems to prefer baseball.
0: Well, it is America's pastime, historically it's, speaking. So I'm told, you know, an, an originalist I guess must
1: prefer baseball. Uh, Uh, There is what I'll call photographic evidence of at least five different Supreme Court justices throwing the ceremonial first pitch at a major league game. Now, I'm going to make this a softball and only ask you to name two of the five. I'm going to make it easier still, slow this pitch down a little further, and tell you (laughs) that three of the five are still alive currently.
0: All right. All right. Well, I seem to recall uh, having seen a picture of uh, Chief Justice Taft uh, having thrown out the first pitch, although I don't know whether he did it uh, while he was president or while he was Chief Justice. Uh, But I'll go with William Howard Taft. And I seem to recall Justice Sotomayor uh, throwing out a first pitch a few years ago. I believe she, uh, unfortunately, is a Yankees uh, fan.
1: So your your instincts serve you well on both of those. Uh, Sotomayor is a Yankees fan and has thrown uh, multiple ceremonial pitches at Yankee games mm. throughout her career. Uh, Taft uh, did throw an opening ceremonial pitch. You're right that he did so as president, not as Supreme Court uh, justice. Okay. So he was apparently the first president to do so. But I believe the first Supreme Court justice as well, given okay. given his later ascent to the bench. Um, the other three, in case listeners are curious, would be Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, and Justice Sam Alito, noted unrepentant Phillies fan.
0: <laughs> now, I'm assuming Justice Stevens is he a, was he a
1: Cubs fan? I believe he was. He was a big Chicago Cubs fan. Justice Breyer, I believe, do you have a guess as to which team he threw the pitch for? Would it be the Red Sox? It would be the Sox.
0: Okay, okay, fairly very, safe guess. Very interesting.
1: All right. And I'll close us out today on a non-baseball, non-football, even non-revenue sport note. So fall is typically associated with football, of course, but there are six different collegiate sports, including football, active during the season. My question to you, Zach, is which sport and which team, has, just as Thomas said, are his favorites?
0: Well, I know Justice Thomas is a uh, big Nebraska Cornhuskers fan, so I, I know his favorite collegiate sports program is Nebraska. In terms of his favorite sport, I know he goes to football games. I would assume football, but uh, tell me if that's right.
1: In the justice's own words, it's actually Nebraska women's volleyball.
0: Interesting.
1: So huh. we have a, we have a split decision there. You're definitely right about the institution, but women's volleyball. Uh, so he's got to be very proud of the Husker women at the moment who last I checked are still holding on to a national number one ranking.
0: Very good. Well, Jack, I have to tell you, I think I prefer your trivia to GCs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, GC, uh, he likes to go, uh, go you know, in the, uh, the very academic direction a lot of times. I am a simple man, a simple country lawyer. Uh, so I always welcome the, uh, the sports-related trivia
1: hey, yeah, 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 you know, I, I know how to go for the, uh, the everyman audience I have here in studio. <laughs>
0: uh, well, well done. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter, now X, at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation, Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.